episode two of the uh, Professional Football Researchers Association podcast here uh, as part of the uh, Sports History Network is uh, with us and uh, John Bozica, George Bozica back with you and uh, excited to bring you another episode tonight. And, um, you know, I want to kind of talk a few moments before we get into the episode because of uh, some recent events that have happened. And, and that's what's kind of inspired our episode tonight. Uh uh, I guess wherever you may be listening this today, tonight, whenever you're listening to it or catching it on Spotify or, or your your Apple Play or wherever you're you're listening on the Sports History Network, wherever it may be. But the DeMar Hamlin situation uh, that happened with uh, the player for the Buffalo Bills and um, everything that transpired uh, a little over uh, at this time of this recording about a week ago, um, you know, and, and now here we are and uh, DeMar seems to be on the up and up and in a better position. And um, I think we at the PFRA are so happy to see that. So many people are so happy to see that. And it, I think it's inspired a movement of people to talk less about the game and more about the human element of all of this. Yeah, I think that's the important thing uh, that we hope can take from this situation. It, it really was pleasant to be able to see his progress uh, after you know he was uh, couldn't breathe and to the point where he st- started to breathe on his own and then he was you know verbalizing things and uh, you know finally now he's back home which I just think is amazing and shows the fact that here's a you know world class athlete in the best mm. of shape and was able you know to get back home and uh, hopefully is going to hopefully be able to continue his career. Well, and that's the thing too, that, that, you know, I was talking with uh, some folks at, at work and, and we were just saying that, you know, the ultimate thing would be if you're the Buffalo bills, now you're in the playoffs, you're going to be hosting a playoff game. You know, if you can get DeMar to feel up to it, yeah. just have him dress. Yeah. I mean, have yeah. him dress, have him run the yeah. team out. I mean, you know, I, I know orchard park would just be a madhouse if they decided to do that. Um, you know, and something that would be really, really cool. And, and all the bills mafia that listened to us, I'm sure that would be a, a huge moment for them too. But, you know, it did kind of take on a, a Cinderella like proportion last week of a fairy tale when, you know, Naheim Hines takes back the opening kickoff and he takes another one back later in the game, um, you know, and they win over the Patriots. But, you know, I mean, it, it shows, I think it showed in the, the power of sport too to bring us together during yeah. a tough time like this, you know, we don't get that very often in society and to get that was kind of cool. Yeah, I think it was uh, the fact that his uh, charity yeah, uh, yeah. W- w- just took off with, you know, I think millions of dollars of donations uh, since since the incident is just amazing and shows, you know, the goodness in people and the, the willingness of people to maybe put aside their fandom uh, and still support in that kind of situation. It, it uh, uh, coming after the holiday season and maybe continuation of the holiday season, it just was a nice thing to see. So we wanted to find a tie, uh, I guess, from a historical standpoint to Damar Hamlin to uh, a time in the NFL. And uh, we had to go back all the way to the 70s um, and find a story about uh, a Lions player, uh, uh, I guess a, a journeyman wide receiver, if you will, in Chuck Hughes. And uh, uh, George, we were able to find uh, a really nice guest for this that uh, is going to be joining us. Yeah, uh, Dennis Crawford, who's a longtime member uh, and contributor to the uh, PFRA. Uh, currently, he is a uh, historian and exhibit designer at the College Football Hall of Fame. Uh, uh, and he wrote an article in uh, 2021, uh, issue five of that year, on uh, the death of Chuck Hughes and its impact on NFL medicine. 
So uh, we reached out to Dennis and he's going to be our guest tonight. Yeah. And if you like what you hear, by the way, uh, make sure that you leave us a rating. If you're listening on Spotify, wherever you may be listening, leave a rating, leave a review um, uh, and tell us what you like about the podcast, what you don't. And uh, George and I will go back to the lab and try to improve those things or continue doing what we're doing. But uh, here's our discussion with Dennis now. Pleased now to be joined uh, on the podcast by uh, our guest this evening, and uh, that is Dennis Crawford, uh, who's joining us, a longtime member and contributor to the PFRA, uh, currently a historian uh, and an exhibit designer at the uh, Chick-fil-A College Football Hall of Fame. Uh, Shameless plug there, I guess, for the chicken sandwiches. Um, And uh, get the opportunity to talk with him about different things tonight. And mainly our story is he's also an author of three books and recently wrote a piece in 2021 in the Coffin Corner magazine in the Pro Football Researchers Association magazine uh, about Chuck Hughes um, and the impact that it had on NFL medicine. And uh, Dennis, thanks for joining us. Uh, let's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you for reaching out. Um, sorry that a mere tragedy was the genesis of this particular topic of conversation. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the the reason why we're having this discussion is because of what just happened uh, not even two weeks ago now, uh, might have been just a little over two weeks ago uh, with Damar Hamlin and uh, the story of what took place with the uh, defensive back who plays for the Buffalo Bills and how he nearly passed on uh, in the middle of an NFL game after taking a really tough shot uh, to his midsection, stopped breathing on the field and uh, Thanks to, um, I guess, prayers and and the the power of uh, medicine and things like that, Demar is out of the hospital in Cincinnati now and uh, seems to be on his way to uh, rebounding in his NFL career. Hopefully, I think that's what everybody hopes for. And reason why we're discussing this with you tonight, Dennis, is because of what happened to a, I guess, little known Lions player from the 1970s. And Chuck Hughes was a journeyman by all accounts and uh, had a very similar scenario that did not end up as well and uh, took a turn for the worst. And I guess that's what we kind of want to learn more about from you and uh, have you tell that story to us. Well, um, back in October of 1971, uh, the Detroit Lions were hosting the Chicago Bears at uh, Tiger Stadium. And the Bears had just taken the lead 28-23. There was less than two minutes to go in the game. And Chuck Hughes made his first pass reception of the season uh, down to the 36-yard line. So fans in the stadium were getting quite excited, thinking that this might be a comeback victory. Uh, Several plays later, uh, Hughes just ran a simple pattern 15 yards down the field. He was not targeted on the play. And the pass fell incomplete. And according to accounts, I looked at both the Detroit Free Press and the Chicago Tribune, their accounts lined up as he was just simply jogging back to the huddle. He stopped, uh, clutched his chest and just collapsed to the ground and lost consciousness. And uh, Dick Butkus, of all people, a very intimidating presence, uh, a very violent linebacker, uh, reputation wise. frantically waved for medical personnel to come out on the field because he was the closest person to Chuck Hughes at that time. And he knew something serious was wrong uh, with Chuck Hughes. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, it's so very similar to what we saw just a little over a week ago with DeMar Hamlin, how he takes a hit in the midsection from T Higgins on a simple everyday play. And, and I think that's kind of the first thing I, I want to bring up with you, uh, Dennis, but these things, when they happen similar to Chuck Hughes, it's everyday plays that they mm-hmm. happen on. It puts in perspective, I guess, kind of how important and how difficult the game is. And it puts in perspective that, you know, a game that the three of us may think we could play, mm-hmm. you know, these are the the greatest people in the greatest shape and something like this happens to them. It just really kind of, it leaves you awestruck. Yes, because what I found out while researching this, and um, I mean, I always felt morbid that I wanted to research this story, but with the, you know, with last year being the 50th, well, I guess two years ago being the 50th anniversary, I just felt the time was right for me to research it. Um, Something very similar happened to Chuck Hughes in the preseason against, ironically of all teams, the Buffalo Bills. In a preseason game, he caught a pass and had almost a helmet to chest encounter with a player. He was knocked out of the game. And for several weeks, he was suffering from chest pains, stomach pains, nausea, and dizziness. And so he recovered enough that a few weeks into the season, he returned to play. Uh, as again, you mentioned, he was a journeyman. He didn't, he, he played mostly as a reserver on special teams. So he didn't get the chance to be on the field that often. Um, what doctors ultimately believed happened to kind of put the cart before the horse was that he suffered some kind of damage to his heart and his ribs in that hit against Buffalo. And he started to develop blood clots in the arteries going to his heart. And so when he caught that pass against Chicago months later and he did get hit relatively hard on the play, not as violently as the others, but he got hit relatively hard. Doctors believe that one of those clots broke loose and worked its way into his heart, and that caused his fatal heart attack. I thought it was interesting in reading your article that you indicated that Alex Karras, uh, another famous name you know, from that era, he did not make the Lions team that year. He was released. But he remembered the Chuck Hughes incident, and he remembered saying that Hughes, after the Buffalo hit, was never the same the rest of the time. He he was complaining of just you know not feeling good. He said he didn't look good. Uh, you know he was having discomfort, and uh, you know he just indicated that it was obvious that something was wrong. And he thought it was, and I guess they thought it was acid reflux. And he was like popping Alka Seltzer like they were. I think used it in the article like they were fizzies, uh, which I thought was really interesting. That you know that. You know, again, you know, here's this big defensive hulk of a guy, Alex Harris, and noticed this when they were, I guess, playing cards or just around in the same, you know, social circles. Yeah. And um, his wife, Sharon, had mentioned that, or I should, you know, sadly, his widow, Sharon, mentioned that in interviews years after the incident, that there was just something off about her husband after that time. Um, and it's always easy uh, in hindsight to say what should have been done. Uh, but this is, this is medicine 50 some odd years ago and team doctors have quite often always been more um, specialists in um, muscular issues or uh, they may have chiropractic backgrounds. Um, So 
to try and diagnose a heart ailment like this in that day and time with uh, physicians who specialized in other aspects of the anatomy, you know, it, it, it really did come as a, as a big surprise. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, too, that you mentioned that uh, they gave him mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation mm -hmm. on the field. Uh, and when he was finally pronounced dead, uh, one of the doctors mentioned that he had been without oxygen for so long, uh, even though they tried for quite a while to do it. I think I think they said this cutoff in another article I read about DeMar Hamlin. They said that the cutoff is about three minutes, that you got to have something happen within three minutes. And they said that, you know, and maybe it was of the time period 50 years ago, because I know that one of the things you went into in your article, and I'm sure we'll discuss that tonight, is, you know, just the effect that it had on the way the NFL treated these kind of situations. But I thought it was interesting, uh, that whole scenario, but they gave him mouth to mouth. They didn't obviously have um, CPR or the uh, the uh, defibrillators on the, on the sideline at that time. Yeah, and um, it, 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 it's um, sadly, this is the painful way history teaches us that every time there's advances, there's advances because usually there's been some kind of a horrible event or tragedy. And so at this time, very few, and I'm not holding the NFL to this, but you know, any major professional sport at that time, uh, having um, automatic external defibrillators or AEDs on the sideline was just not common practice. And I think with DeMar Hamlin, the fact that there was an AED and a crash cart on the sideline probably saved his life. So, um, you know, I, I know it's always difficult to speculate, but I have a hard time believing that there isn't a direct line between what happened to Chuck Hughes and DeMar Hamlin being able to go home to his family uh, less than 10 days after that event. Yeah, you, you kind of open up what I was going to ask is that did did Chuck Hughes in some roundabout way save DeMar Hamlin? You know, and, and, that, and that's kind of crazy to think about because I know there have been other cases of things that have happened in NFL lore and history, but I mean, this is the one case where a guy died in the middle of a field. And like somebody said the other night, there was a, a point in time where DeMar Hamlin was not with us, you know, and then they, they brought him back. Um, so I guess it brings me back to the original question. If Chuck Hughes doesn't happen, do you think DeMar Hamlin is walking today? Well, um, I would like to, I would like to think not. And the reason why I say that is, is because in the intervening 50 years, there have been other cardiac events in, uh, in different professional sports. So, um, you know, somebody like in basketball, Reggie Lewis. Now, now, if I remember correctly, and you guys can correct me, or as, uh, as we learned from that wonderful TV show, Atlanta, just fix it in post. Um, but I believe um, that Reggie Lewis had a heart, a congenital heart defect that led to uh, his fatal uh, heart incident. Um, but I'm thinking there's been other incidents of uh, athletes in their primes having cardiac events, uh, Hank Gaithers um, of Loyola Marymount basketball fame. So I would like to think in the intervening 50 years, we would have still gotten to this point. If anything, um, then once again, it's a, uh, I always, I always hesitate doing this because I don't want to treat Chuck Hughes as a prop for history. He was, 
you know, a, a fully formed human being with hopes and dreams and aspirations and a family, but um, he is the symbolic start of this, of this change. Um, so if he had lived through this, who knows what would have happened a couple of years later, maybe somebody else would have been this, uh, this uh, patient X for it. In the immediate aftermath of this, I know that at the time, uh, Detroit had high hopes because of the previous season of finishing strong this season. And one of the things you go into in your article is, is the effect that it had. And I, and I was, I was drawn by the fact that, that, you know, there were some similarities. Obviously we don't know what the overall effect is going to be yet on the bills and the Bengals. They both obviously won last weekend and we can't tell with them both being in the playoffs, but if you could go into the effect that it had, uh, you know, and, and, and in the immediate aftermath, uh, cause I thought it was very interesting and in comparing it to what happened with the bills and the Bengals. Yeah. Um, and once again, uh, you know, not, you know, hindsight being, uh, hindsight being 2020, uh, the NFL at that time just continued to play, but that's because um, there was no handbook for this. So there was uh, very little time left in that game. They take Chuck Hughes's limp body off the field, load him in an ambulance. He drives away. The game concludes. Both teams actually have to play a few more downs of football uh, before the game ends. So uh, Detroit had come into this game uh, four and one. They had just made the playoffs the previous year as a wild card. They returned pretty much fully intact from the previous season. Um, so they had high aspirations of winning the central division that year. But after this game, they, you know, they're, they learn that their teammate dies that night. Um, they come into the locker room the next day. Uh, the day after that, they're flying down to Texas uh, to attend his memorial service while at the same time attempting to raise money for his widow because Chuck left a young bride and a very young boy behind. Uh, they go to the funeral. They're flying back from Texas that night. Their plane develops problems. They have to have a landing on the way before that they can return to Detroit. And then, oh, by the way, you have to be, play Green Bay this very next week. Um, and, and they go into a tailspin. Um, they lose the majority of their games the remainder of the way. They finish with a losing record. Um, and uh, their head coach uh, at the time, I believe it was Joe Schmidt, um, was honest in saying, we, we never recovered from this you know every time we walk into the locker room chuck is missing so there's that reminder every single day and what was interesting was the bear struggled too uh because the two players that were involved in that hit um and i'm sorry uh i only have their last names in this section i'm looking at uh, lyle and jeter they did a high low on him they were panicky that maybe they were the ones that had killed Chuck Hughes inadvertently, but, you know, can you imagine trying to play the remainder of the season thinking that you may have killed another man? So the bears went into a, a tailspin the rest of that year as well. Yeah. I saw the Lyle you mentioned was particularly despondent afterwards and just, you know, couldn't, they, they couldn't console him because he thought he had, had caused this. And they both said, you know, we never want to be in a situation where we hurt somebody. You know, and either either hurt ourselves or hurt somebody else. That's never our 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 mindset. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I guess uh, 
I guess what we saw then last weekend, you know, the NFL taking the unprecedented step of just uh, claiming that that was a non-game. And while you can argue that this coin flip or neutral site AFC championship and, you know, Roger Goodell opens himself up to be the target of criticism because that's the nature of his job. But I have a hard time criticizing him with this decision because I think we've gotten into an era finally where we understand that football players are not superhuman. They're not gladiators. They're not warriors. I don't care how it's marketed. A man's life was in jeopardy who was beloved by his teammates and respected by his opponents. They just couldn't play uh, the rest of that game. And um, blessedly uh, Hamlin lived and, the Bills were able to go out and play the following week and actually played inspiring uh, football. So, um, but if they had been forced to play the rest of that game, uh, I don't, I, I hate to think of what would uh, the state of the Bills or the the Bengals be at this time. I, you know, I think both teams needed time away to be human. Dennis Crawford is our guest. He is a member and a contributor of the uh, Professional Football Researchers Association, currently a uh, exhibit designer, and uh, that is at the College Football Hall of Fame, an author of three books and also uh, author of a Coffin Corner article uh, just a few years ago in 2021 about the death of Chuck Hughes, former Lions player, and its impact on NFL medicine. You know, Dennis, a couple of things you've said have really struck me. One, the fact that Chuck's family did not have this like built-in nest egg of him being a millionaire to be able to rest their laurels on and simply just move on in their life. Chances are Chuck was working a job in the offseason to probably supply some some money for the family. He wasn't making, you know, 2.3 million as a middle or as a wide receiver for for the Lions. And I think that's interesting. I think the fact that they run into the issues of the plane is interesting. I think this story shows really, and I guess this is where I'm getting at, but it shows the advances the NFL have made or has made in these things and the advances they've made on medicine, the advances they've made on transportation, the advances they've made on taking care of players. And I know that this isn't like the one point that, that started all that, but do you think this was a factor in some of the modern day things that we do to take care of players who play in the NFL? Well, I, I think it definitely uh, led to improvement in at least, at least in the, in the short term, um, who could be a team doctor. I do think some teams, not all, but some teams realized we need to have a cardiologist um, or a, a pulmonologist or uh, somebody who specializes in circulatory and respiratory issues. Um, I mean, there's always been that joke that the head of the NFL's concussion team was a rheumatologist. So, you know, they didn't, they didn't fix everything. Um, right. But on, on game day, I, you know, there were better trained uh, medical staff. There were AEDs, there were crash carts. Um, that started showing up at Milwaukee County Stadium the next Monday night when the Lions went to Green Bay. The Packers had an AED on the sideline for the first time. 
Wow. So, so that kind of thing did happen rapidly. Um, but, um, but there's still a lot of work to do. I do believe that the concussion protocol that the NFL has now is an improvement, um, but it's based on humans and humans are always um, imperfect as we saw of the controversy now about Tua Tonga Vailoa. You know, did he have a concussion against, again, once again, Buffalo seems to be the fulcrum of this evening. Um, did he suffer a concussion against Buffalo and he either hit it so well that he fooled the sideline doctors or did the sideline doctors not do a um, thorough enough examination of him on the sideline and let him go back into a game concussed. And then he's had this compounding thing since. So um, there's been a lot of improvement, but um, I think a lot of fans um, and people who love this game realize that there's still a lot more uh, left to be done, but the players also have to take some of that, uh, responsibility. I remember the one thing I was thinking about uh, while researching this, um, and I certainly don't want to blame the victim. Um, could Chuck Hughes have maybe been a better advocate for himself? Or was it because he was in an era where he was not making a lot of money? He had a young wife, he had a young child. You know, if I, if I complain too much, I'm going to get cut. Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting aspects when you mention that of the Bengal lion situation, because it appears that the players were, at least as we're being depicted, were very proactive and basically saying, hey, we're not going to play anymore. You know, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, the players have much more power, authority and everything else in the NFL now mm -hmm. than they did back in the 70s. Or if you even go back even beyond that. And, and I think that's a factor in terms of what happened in today's world, 50 years after what Chuck, you said, maybe, maybe too, there was a certain macho aspect to, well, I'm going to get back on the field. You know, it, well, you know, I, I, I remember, you know, as, as I'm sitting here, I remember Frank Gifford's hit when mm -hmm. Chuck Bednarik, you know, took Frank Gifford out, you know, and, and he was out of football for a year, you know, and, but, you know, he came back, you know, it, it just amazing maybe the time difference too, in terms of, you know, uh, how football has evolved. Well, we were, we were talking on our last podcast with Mark Miller, who was again, a, a journeyman with the Browns and with the Packers. And, and, you know, we were talking to him about how money has affected the game. And he said that, you know, when you were in the league back then and you were making $42,000 a year, he said, which is like what a normal blue collar worker makes now on a good high end job. He said, you know, you were putting your life on the line for just about everything. He said, because if you had a, you know, a sore arm, he said that wasn't enough to take you off the field. You mm -hmm. know, it had to be that you were like actively like, you know, ready to go to the hospital to not be on the field. And, and as you said, I think that could have been an issue. And, and in today's game, you would never see a guy that's not feeling well play. I mean, guys sit out for, for back tightness these days. Back then, that was like a, a battle wound that you would play through that, you know. Yeah, well, it's also but now we also know uh, many of these players that were in this game. Um, you know, if they, if you were a rookie, so you were 21, 22 years old during that game, you're now in your early seventies. So most of the men in this game, if they had long careers are in their seventies to eighties and they're suffering, uh, many of them debilitating injuries. So it's one of those things, if they knew then what they know now, would they have had the same attitude as the players today? Cause the players today have the benefit of knowing this past 50 years. Uh, maybe they don't know 50 years of history, 
but they're in better touch with their own bodies. They're in better touch with the technology that's out there. So um, I think there's just been a lot of changes to our culture that has led to this as well. Do you think those things are all good? I mean, because I know there's a lot of people that say that the NFL isn't tough enough anymore. And they say that we coddle quarterbacks too much and we coddle the athletes too much and they make millions. They should be willing to take the hits just to play devil's advocate. Do you think it's good? I, I, I do. Um, I'm now in my early fifties. Um, and so I, you know, have, I've, I've had friends, I've lost friends, I've had family members pass away. I've had family members and friends who suffered from debilitating injuries or illness. So uh, I think the older I get, the more I value health and happiness and fulfillment. And so I think anything that helps somebody to have those three is a net positive. And so if the cost of that is I don't get to see broken bodies on Sunday. That seems like a very small price to pay. Right. Right. And, but it, it, it is interesting though. And, and I know that, that, you know, we've both been how many Browns games in the last, like, you know, 15 years. And like, I mean, I know you, you sit in the stands and you hear fans that are in the stands and a guy takes a hit and he takes a while to get up. And, and what's the first thing you hear? you know, fans yelling at that guy and, and ridiculing that guy and making him feel like you're not tough enough. You know, like, how are you not getting up to play the next play? And I, I just think that this, this, this maybe has created a real pause for a lot of those people. I would hope, I don't know. Do you think that way? No, I think it has. I, I think this is an eye opener. I, I thought it was interesting. I was um, in preparing for our discussion tonight. I, I found an article about um, Chuck Hughes widow. Um, and she said she was just horrified by the whole situation with DeMar Hamlin. And, uh, you know, she just hoped that the league was, you know, monitoring this types of things and doing that type of thing, which, you know, doing a little bit of research, obviously they, they are, you know, obviously every player gets a complete physical, you know, they now have the equipment on the sideline. It's part of the protocol. They go through training. Uh, they even do like rehearsals, I guess now, uh, which I think you mentioned in your article, some of the protocol from a couple of years ago. Yeah, uh, the opening, uh, the lead paragraph of my story, I talk about this missive that came out in 2017 or 18, that every year the teams must practice what they would do in a cardiac event on the field, whether it's a player, a coach, a referee, you know, we, you know, we have a cardiac emergency on the field involving some individual, what do we do? And so doing that training every year, making that mandatory also uh, has most likely helped to, uh, to save lives or at least to uh, get somebody, buy somebody to the time they needed to get more uh, impactful medical attention. Well, and, and I read too that apparently, and, and I don't know if this is something that you researched too, um, Dennis, but I read that hospitals in the area of these teams on Sundays actually keep a like portion of an emergency room or doctors on standby with the NFL that if something like a DeMar Hamlin happens they're ready to go so that it's like they're ready to be pressed into action I guess just like anything you know you would want to have that precaution I'm not sure if that's something that you saw in your research too but I, I find that very interesting that I guess there's so many working parts of the NFL that we don't see like that, you know? Yeah. 
Well, I mean, I, I did not know that, uh, so I appreciate learning something new. I'll uh, I'll definitely dig in. <laughs> um, no, the uh, the only other thing I could think about was um, that I was trying to think of other NFL events that happened uh, also in the seventies. Uh, uh, JV Kane of the then St. Louis Cardinals in training camp died from heat stroke, and that led to a lot of changes. Um, Corey Stringer of the Minnesota Vikings, I think also died of, he may have been more dehydration than sunstroke in a Minnesota Vikings training camp. So those are other events. They weren't cardiac events, but those are other things where you, you now see that training camp is not as regimented and militaristic as it used to be. The, the, the day of the um, Vince Lombardi to a day, practices that go two and a half hours in the morning, two and a half hours in the afternoon in the intense heat of the day. And no dinner, no, no dinner or lunch in between either of those. Right. I mean, for the longest time, it was standard practice. It was actually medically understood that you should not give players water during practice because they'll cramp up and become waterlogged and that's more debilitating to them. So it's just things that, you know, we, we know what we know and we know it. <laughs> so. I, I remember when I was in high school and it was just, Hey, take a salt tablet. And then they yeah. found out salt tablets did absolutely nothing for you. What a so, horrid idea. Yeah. So, yeah. So don't, don't drink milk because it will cut down on your wind. Yeah. yeah. Oh, now you have to drink all the milk you can because you need strong bones. Yeah. So that's just one final question I thought was interesting was, is that, um, uh, Chuck Hughes, uh, widow did not hold the risk, the, doctors trainers or anything responsible but she did end up suing uh ford hospital did she not yes because they had missed they obviously had misdiagnosed uh her husband uh back after that preseason game in august um a cardiologist who was watching the game on tv back in chicago because you know this is an era where there is no nfl sunday ticket the only people who saw this game were people in the chicagoland area um, but he immediately said, that's a cardiac arrest. This man's having a heart attack. Um, and the autopsy showed he possibly had another cardiac event um, back in that preseason game. So that's where the, the lawsuit came from, was them misdiagnosing uh, her husband. And she did, well, actually, I think she was going to win, but I think she settled it out of court, but still um, had a, the, the hospital still suffered a financial penalty for that i thought it was interesting too the the one of the photos that accompanies the story uh shows an i think an anesthesiologist who was helping that jumped out of the stands uh you know which is something that you may not see i remember there was a time when they would announce if something was going on well, was there a doctor in the house <laughs> i do remember those days but i thought it was interesting here's an anesthesiologist and you show him in the picture that he's you know helping them uh you know get him off the field which i i was just fascinated by that also yeah, because he he recognized what was going on. That was his, you know, that's his field. He was yes. dealing with patients in dire situations as a way he makes a living. So, uh, you know, he jumped into action. Like I said, the 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 cardiologist who was watching the game on TV back in Chicago recognized the signs immediately. Um, but you know, very few people outside of that did. You know, I, I wanted to ask is, 
you know, kind of one last thing here uh, before we wrap this up with Dennis Crawford, which we thank you so much for your time, Dennis, and and your stories that you've told us. Uh, if you haven't seen his article, uh, go to uh, the PFRA's website, Professional Football Researchers Association, and uh, register for your um, uh, chance to become a member of the, the association. Uh, shameless plug. I got the president sitting next to me. I got to do those things. Um, but talking about Chuck Hughes and uh, his, I guess, impact on the NFL. And I, I think we've covered this from a lot of bases here, but when it comes to what DeMar Hamlin went through, how do you think 30 years from now we'll view something like this? Is it going to allow for more advances? Is it going to change the way that we police players in the off season when it comes to health? What do you think the effect of DeMar Hamlin is going to be? Well, I hope it does not devolve into simply a feel good story. I mean, there was a very Hollywood esque aspect to the bills returning the opening kickoff of the next game for a touchdown and the emotional release of everybody at the stadium in Buffalo. And, um, I'm a writer at heart, so I do love a good story. Um, and I know that everybody was happy and it made him feel good, but we can't forget the reason why we felt so good was because how terrified we were when we saw that game on Monday night. So what I, what I hope is gained from this is that um, the system worked. The system helped to save someone's life. Um, but that you have to always be vigilant. All it took was, you know, and I'm sorry to bring back Tua. I know concussions are, are radically different than uh, heart ailments. Um, it is possible that somebody misdiagnosed Tua that day, and now he has had possibly three very serious concussions in less than three months. Um, so, all we need is one person to maybe make a mistake on the next DeMar Hamlin and there'll be a tragedy. So uh, hopefully what we get out of this is every single incident must be treated seriously. Yeah, I think that's well said. I, I, I hope, too, that we understand the significance because I think there's a tendency in today's world with the 24-7 news cycle and social media to sort of trivialize these things eventually because they, they get so much overplay that sometimes people forget about that initial significance. And I think that's really well said. Dennis, I want to give you a chance here. Um, tell people where they can find you. Uh, tell them about your books. Um, I want to give you the chance because you've joined us. Uh, we've we've told you about us. I want to give you the chance to to kind of tell people about you too. Okay. Well, right now I'm in my apartment and I don't want anybody to find me here. Uh, but you can <laughs> you can find my work uh, uh, online. I have uh, I've been very fortunate in that I've been able to turn what was once a hobby into a profession. Um, I love the history of football, whether it be professional or college, or um, some people refer to it as minor league, but I happen to think the USFL, the World Football League, and all these other leagues are awesome uh, in their own way. Um, so if you um, are interested in the history of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, I've written a couple of books about them. Um, I've written a biography on Johnny F. Bassett, uh, one of my sporting heroes who owned the Tampa Bay Bandits um, of the USFL, among many other teams. Um, you also remind me I need to renew my membership in the PFRA because even though I write for you guys, you still want that check every year. Um, 
but I hopefully, uh, while I had to take a step back as managing editor because of this new opportunity to be the historian uh, at the College uh, Football Hall of Fame, uh, the PFRA is still going to always be very near and dear to my heart. You know, I've got an in with the president. I, I hear he's a pretty reasonable guy. I don't know. Maybe I can get him to to cut you a deal of some sort. I don't know. I, I think I kind of know him pretty well, but we'll see what we can do about that for you. All right. Dennis, uh, Dennis Crawford, uh, great stuff. Really appreciate you joining us, and uh, we'll do this again in the future. All right, sir? All right. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yep. Thanks, Dennis. Thanks. Thanks, Dennis. We appreciate you. All righty. You guys have a great night. Yep, you too. You too.